0: Welcome, and thank you for standing by. At this time, all participants are on listen-only mode until our question and answer session. At that time, if you would like to ask a question, please record your name
1: and affiliation. Today's conference is being recorded. If you have any objections, you may disconnect at this time. And now I would like to turn the meeting
0: over to the Honorable Jane Harmon, Director, President, and CEO of the Wilson Center. You may begin.
2: Thank you, Operator, and good morning and welcome to those joining from the United States, El Salvador, Nicaragua, and uh, from around the world. Uh, Thanks for joining the Wilson Center's 159th Ground Truth Briefing. Discussions like today's are the reason the Wilson Center has been named the number one think tank in the world for regional studies three years in a row. Uh, El Salvador and Nicaragua were flashpoints, uh, you all know this, for U.S. foreign policy in the 1980s. I surely remember it, it was shortly before I was elected to the United States Congress. Uh, they were flashpoints during the Cold War years of insurgency and counterinsurgency in Central America. Now the so-called Northern Triangle countries of El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras are on the agenda as U.S. policymakers aim to clamp down on migration while dealing with the push factors that make people leave their homes in the first place. Today's discussion takes us on a slightly different but related direction. Our speakers are distinguished experts from El Salvador and Nicaragua, and we'll explore how governments in those two countries are responding to the global COVID-19 pandemic. We'll explore what the response tells us about the ability to protect public health, but perhaps even more importantly, what it tells us about governance and the rule of law, something that is a priority focus for the Wilson Center. Uh, Salvador President uh, Naib Bukele, and Nicaraguan President Daniel Ortega have adopted radically different approaches to the pandemic. Bukela has adopted a strict lockdown, while or- Ortega has allowed and even encouraged large public gatherings. Both approaches are deeply troubling, as our speakers will explain. And just let me mention that in the print edition of today's New York Times, I'm one of the five people on earth who still reads the print edition of anything, uh, there is an article entitled, Outbreaks Untold Devastation of Latin America. It focuses, or the picture focuses, on uh, a a brand-new cemetery in Brazil, uh, which has had over 11,500 virus deaths and where coffins are stacked three layers deep. It is enormously disturbing to see a picture like that and read an article like that. And I'm very um, uh, relieved that... um, uh, this 159th Ground Truth Briefing uh, of the Wilson Center will shed uh, light, not just heat, on this problem. So, joining us to guide today's discussion are uh, Cynthia Cindy Arnson, the exceptional director of our Latin American program, and Ricardo Zuniga, Zun, 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 a senior diplomatic fellow on leave from the State Department. Ricardo himself is from Honduras, and he and Cindy have followed... Central American politics for decades we're delighted to have you both and now please welcome uh, Cindy Arnson, who will say a, wor- a few words about this program and introduce uh, our other panelists over to you, Cindy
3: Jane, thanks so much and thanks for your exceptional leadership of the Wilson Center during this very difficult time. Um, I will give a short introduction and introduce our speakers. Um, Since taking office in June of 2019, Salvadoran President Nayib Bukele has clashed frequently with the country's legislature and Supreme Court over issues of executive authority. Bukele remains highly popular in El Salvador, but critics charge that he is weakening El Salvador's fragile and hard-won democracy. He has deployed the security forces, even into the legislature to force compliance with his budgetary priorities. And he's clashed with the Supreme Court on issues critical to the separation of powers. Now, as Jane was saying, in the face of the pandemic, he has imposed a harsh lockdown, unleashing the security forces to arrest arrest thousands of people accused of quarantine violations. Across the Gulf of Fonseca in Nicaragua, The authoritarian government of President Daniel Ortega has taken a distinctly different path. Ortega has called the pandemic a sign from God, and the government has allowed and even encouraged schools to remain open, sports events, festivals, and other mass gatherings to take place. But independent reports from journalists and health workers, some of them just now reaching the US press, paint a grim picture of overwhelmed hospitals and express burials that the government continues to deny. We are privileged to have four distinguished guests from El Salvador and Nicaragua, and I will introduce them in the order in which they'll speak. First, Jose Luis Sanz is director of El Faro, a digital (coughs) media outlet in El Salvador known for its courageous investigative journalism. Carmen Aida Lasso is Dean of the Escuela Superior de Economía y Negocios, known by its acronym ESEN, a prominent business school in El Salvador. Next, turning to Nicaragua, Carlos Fernando Chamorro is founder and director of Confidencial, an online independent media outlet that has faced constant harassment and threats from the government. And finally, but not least, Dr. Jorge Huete who is the vice rector of the Universidad Centroamericana, the UCA, in Managua, and a medical doctor and director of its Molecular Biology Center. So, Jose Luis, the floor is yours.
4: Well, thank you. Uh, Good morning. Uh, First of all, sorry for my accent. uh, I hope it will not be a hand gap for the conversation. But, uh, well, first, uh, some facts. Uh, El Sador has been in, in mandatory quarantine since March. Uh, the international airport has uh, has been closed for the last two months. Uh, the country has been completely closed uh, for, for this time, including any non-essential economical economic activity. In fact, 2,500 people, uh, as, as we say, it, uh, has been arrested case of breaking breaking the, the lockdown, and they are now in detention centers, supposed to be uh, quarantine centers, but fully controlled by military and the police. Uh, the current figures uh, indicate that this early response worked, uh, at least uh, in terms of the spread of the virus. Uh, El Salvador has received, registered uh, nearly 1,000 cases uh, of coronavirus and only 20 deaths put it in perspective, uh, that's the same number of deaths that the violence causes in in El Salvador in only three or four days. Um, Also one of its three cases has been recovered. So in in terms of uh, the uh, public health response, the numbers uh, are are, are quite good for for what uh, they could be. Uh, they are slowly rising. Uh, we are still waiting for the peak of the curve, but the early responses have worked. But still, the government has been unable to build a clear and consistent, not to say transparent, uh, strategy to face COVID-19. Uh, the lack of biosecurity gear for healthcare personnel remains. Uh, there are complaints about people with and without coronavirus in the same area, so public hospitals. Nobody knows who are the scientific or technical advisors of the president. There is no economic strategy to face the crisis, and there is no clue about a roadmap to open the economy right now. Uh, At the same time, there are almost 4,000 people illegally forced to be in quarantine centers, not only those arrested, but uh, all of uh, all, all the people that came from other countries in the first days of the lockdown, most of them without sanitary warranties. Some of the 20 victims, in fact, were infected in those centers, and hundreds of people in those places have been waiting for weeks the result of their test without any information, not only about their health, but about the date in which uh, they will be released. Uh, Even, we know, this case of of a man who died in false quarantine because the military in charge of the place denied him the right to receive medical assistance for a condition not related with COVID-19. So this is maybe the more serious concern about Najib Bukele actions in this crisis, the arbitrariness. Bukele has signed 24 executive orders in the last two months. Some of them, of course, within the framework of the special laws that the Congress has approved for the emergency, but some others with illegal dispositions, Uh, with the excuse of setting lights. For example, police is now allowed to detain any people in the city that, (coughs) in their opinion, is breaking the quarantine, and retaining them without trial or any evidence for 30 or 40 days in those quarantine centers. Uh, in and far reported cases of people being detained when going to the supermarket, and the case of a woman detained when she was taking her four-year-old kid to the latrine in front of their house in a poor neighborhood. In this specific case, uh, her name is Cindy Reyes, even the Supreme Court ruled in favor of the woman, but the government and the police refused to accept the order to release her, She so she's still today in detention. The Supreme Court has ruled three times, at least three times, against detention for other decisions of the police president, Uh, but Bukele publicly stated that uh, he will not submit to these resolutions. Uh, Another presidential executive order included the authorization authorization to the police or the military to enter a private house without any search uh, warrant. A couple of cases uh, were reported, but this seems not to be happening any, anymore. Uh, and also, uh, and again, is an example of the arbitrariness. Uh, uh, some of these executive orders have <coughs> been made public and enforced made effective in, in the middle of the night. Two weeks ago, Bukele announced via Twitter a new executive order at 11.30 p.m. to be effective ex- at midnight. And last Saturday, announced via Twitter again, a new one with few new dispositions, but still an executive order at 1 a.m. The document saying that it was detected from midnight, I mean one hour before. Uh, and, and, And that's an example of how he is taking decisions and communicating these decisions. In fact, the decision of closing the entire public transportation system was made public seven days ago at 6.38 6.38 p.m., again, via Twitter, to be effective at midnight. The result is that the next day, thousands of workers, including doctors or essential workers, have no way to go to work. Some of them worked for hours, uh, on streets. Uh, others just waited for one of the few private cars allowed to go around to help them. Um, the Human Rights Ombudsman Office has received hundreds of complaints related with police ab- uh, abuse in the days. In one particular case, a police officer uh, sued a 17-year-old boy in the legs, two shots, one in its legs. The authorities uh, said that it was an accident. The kid says that he refused to pay a bribe, not to be detained, arrested, and then uh, was shot. Uh, this happened before, days before, Bukele be- tweeted in favor of the use of lethal force to fight gangs as we all know, um, last Saturday we knew about the case of a 22-year-old girl killed by the police. The authorities, again, they say that she was an armed gun member, but there are serious suspicious, that that's not true. Um, again, other of the characteristics of British government, not only during the crisis, but especially during the crisis, is capacity, uh, the lack of transparency, uh, especially in this case in the use of the emergency funds. There are many expressions of the extreme opacity of this government. No independent media has been granted an interview with a single member of this administration in the last year. None of them is permitted to talk with El Faro or Fatum or similar investigative media outlets. During the emergency, all the government agencies are mandated to submit reports to the Congress detailing their expenditures, but only four mm-hmm. uh, out of. 16 did it, and they did not include the name of the contractors in the reports. And there is this committee created by law one month ago to supervise the use of the estimated $3,000 million the government will or plans to expend to fight the pandemic. Two days ago, on Monday, all the civil society leaders designated to be part of this committee all did it together and all gave the same reason, the lack of the lack of transparency of the government. They say they asked for plans, for contracts, for the detail of the origin of the money that they are supposed to monitor, and they received nothing. This group of people includes business persons and scholars, people from private sector organization Annette, uh, from the Caminada University, DSM, or the Jesuits I, people with different backgrounds and, and ideologies, all of them said that the government opacity makes it impossible for them to do the job. Um, well, let me know, in my opinion, this is in some way good news. Um, let me explain why. Because my worst fear during the last year has been a Nicaragua scenario. The possibility of an agreement between the private sector and Bukele's government that could give, like in Nicaragua, some kind of stability to an authoritarian president, a kind of a blank check. Now, this is less likely to happen. Uh, yesterday, in response to the decision of these committee members, uh, President Bukele said, again, I mean, tweeted, uh, um, that he doesn't recognize anymore the current president of the ANEP the private sector representative. Uh, Bukele uh, has already, already defied uh, the Congress and the Supreme Court. Uh, we all you know, has been attacking the independent general since he arrived in the office, and now is burning, seems to be burning, all the breaches uh, in society. Uh, he's still very popular. His popularity rates are about 80%, and there are by now no political alternatives to his power. So probably he will win that year election, uh, legislative uh, uh, election. Uh, And I have no doubt he will continue in this path to uh, authoritarianism. But I think he's with the 9th congress of and now with his decision during the his decisions during the emergency, are working in several sectors sectors of the country the need for preserving the democracy. And if he continues in this path, and I think he will, there will be a confrontation, a real one, not only a verbal uh, but one, I think a real political confrontation. I am worried, of course, about the use he can give to the police or the army because they express their loyalty to the KLM. But uh, I was more worried about the possibility of the whole country giving uh, it to fear. So I think at some point, we are in, a, in the middle of a crisis still to, to raise, to, to become larger, mm-hmm. but also in the start, I think, I hope uh, of the awakening of public opinion and um, public discussions about, uh, about the the health, not only of the country, but of our democracy.
3: Jose Luis, thank you very much. Um, I'd like to remind callers that if you would like to get in the queue to ask a question um, during the discussion, please press star 1. Next, uh, Carmen Naida, please go ahead.
1: Thank you. Well, first of all, uh, thank you for inviting me to be part of this elected group. Uh, it's an honor and to be able to provide some comments, additional to Jose Luis, on how the pandemic is transforming the social, the economic, institutional, in the political perspective of my country, El Salvador, I am an economist, so I would try to focus on the economic and social consequences so far and the potential impacts in the following weeks and, and months. Uh, first, it is important to notice that this crisis has hit El Salvador at a moment when the level of the public debt was already very high. At, at the beginning of, of this year, the debt to GDP ratio reached 72%, uh, a level that is high for our country, especially uh, given the fact that over the last decade, we have been lagging in terms of economic growth in in the region, right? As a consequence, we have a very limited, uh, very narrow space for expansionary fiscal policy. Uh, At a moment when the government readiness right now are in free fall, and at the same time, expenditure is increasing due to the many needs associated with the pandemic. so, This, in turn, means that we're expecting that debt will jump to 83% of GDP by the end of the year, this in an optimistic scenario, and could easily reach 90% of GDP in, in a more realistic scenario. So, We all know that debt is increasing for most countries, uh, but in the case of a low-middle-income country such as El Salvador, this means that by the end of this year, we will be in an extremely fragile macroeconomic position we will lose margins of maneuvers to mitigate the impact of future shocks uh, of a second, for example, round of contagion. Uh, right now, the government is seeking $3,000 million, $3 billion in debt, mainly with multilateral agencies and international markets. But the problem that I see is that the investment climate and the international image of the country has been severely damaged over the last weeks. Uh, well, as you know, actually, the image was at other since February when when the president entered into the Congress with with militaries. Uh, But for now, the growing concerns over the authoritarian behavior of the current administration is, I think, exposing a medium-term damage, not only to our democratic institutions, but on the economic and social progress of El Salvador. So in in summary, at the macroeconomic level, we're expecting a deep weakening of public finances, uh, also an important Impact on remittances. So, so you know, like remittances are about 20% of GDP. We receive in remittances the same amount that we receive in exports. Uh, so, this will be a, a is already, a big hit for to our economy. But expecting an important decline in exports, uh, a contraction of GDP that we have not seen in three decades. Uh, so, as José, as José Luis said, we entered into the general lockdown on March 14. So, 60 days from now. And we still don't, don't have a this discussion on the reopening of the economy, uh, neither do we have an economic plan. Uh, talking about the economy is here in El Salvador. So uh, the uncertainty on when and how we're going to reopen has created a great tension. Uh, but in spite of everything, I, I believe that the most important effects at this moment are at the, at the household level. Uh, so some, some data, 60% of the labor force work at the informal sector, so hundreds of thousands of families have lost their, their income since we entered lockdown two months ago. Uh, the government provided a one-time cash transfer of $300 per family that was supposed to compensate for the lost income, but this transfer had two big problems. First, a lack of transparency, as Jose Luis said, on, on the criteria for eligible households. And also the fact that the mechanism itself provokes agglomerations, which of course increase the risk of contagion. Currently, okay. right now, the only support that vulnerable families are receiving are food baskets. But as with transfers, we, we don't know the criteria for selecting beneficiaries. And we are aware that these baskets are more like bags, but really, provide for a very limited support for the families. So uh, as a consequence, uh, there are already thousands of families that don't have the income to satisfy the basic food needs. So we're starting to see hunger in El Salvador. And to the extent that the lockdown continues for more days, uh, which is the expectation of the government, uh, what I see is an enormous risk that poor people will slide into extreme poverty and even middle-income households will slide into poverty. Uh, Right now, before the crisis, one out of four families is in poverty. Um, I estimate that, uh, given the magnitude of the of the crisis, this could increase to two families out of four. So, uh, so like we can have a big increase in poverty, uh, given the composition and the vulnerability of our labor force and and the magnitude of the impact. And not only people in the informal sector are being affected, but even people working at the formal sector are very vulnerable right now. So, like, about 50% of jobs in the formal sector are either in industry or restaurants and commerce. And they have been uh, paralyzed over the last month. And the government has not released data on job losses, uh, but we hear of many firms that are closing and are closing for good. many maquilas, for example. So, lower household income, lower household consumption, an important increase in poverty malnutrition, and social unrest, I think these are the effects of the crisis at the micro level, which is the level that matters. This, of course, I think will exert pressure on illegal migration from the El Salvador to the United States in, in the following months. And, and finally, just to finish my, my remarks, uh, two days ago, uh, Jose Luis said, five representatives from the universities, Athens in two trade chambers announced that they were retiring from the emergency committee that was created by the Congress to manage the extraordinary emergency budget. And lack of transparency, lack of an emergency plan, that the government never presented the plan, were among the main reasons that they expressed for giving the committee. And this of course, as you can imagine, has sent shockwaves. And the government responded by by attacking the institution. So I have lived in El Salvador all my life. I am 44, and maybe I, I, I don't think it's exaggerated to say that the tension is at high levels right now. And we Salvadorians are increasingly concerned. But my hope is that the president and the government will have the maturity needed to recognize that the only way out of this crisis is unifying the country, not dividing the country. Uh, without a doubt, I, I have no doubt, this is the biggest challenge facing El Salvador since the Civil War. I am convinced that the effects of this crisis will be felt on the most vulnerable families. I think we are at risk of losing two decades of poverty reduction, and we have to do anything possible to avoid the suffering of hundreds of thousands of Salvadorians. Just to exam- an example, is, uh, public schools has been closed for uh, more, more than two months, and many kids, the only meal that they get is, is at the public institution, so they don't have those meals. So, so we have like a result of a big major crisis, social crisis. And for me, finally, a desirable scenario will be one where the government calls for unity among private sector, the Congress, academia, and work together in a plan for mitigating the social and economic impact and for an orderly reopening of the economy. I I believe, I firmly believe, that we still have a chance to avoid a major social crisis, a major setback on our democratic institutions. We have a chance, no doubt. But I think we need to see willingness from the government to facilitate an honest and transparent dialogue. We have, as Jose Luis said, a very popular president. We still have the chance to correct the way. I think he can surround himself with competent advisors. We expect that he shows respect uh, for the separation of power for for the respect of the Constitution. And I think he still has the capacity to unify the country. I think the next day will be critical for reducing detention. So I think we have to, well, let's hope for the best, right? And, and we'll be happy to to comment on specific questions regarding El Salvador. Thank you.
3: Thanks so much, Carmen Aida. And now to Nicaragua. Carlos Fernando, please go ahead.
0: <laughs> Thank you, Cynthia, yeah. for everyone. I think there are many differences between El Salvador's Bukele and Ortega's uh, Nicaragua, but I will summarize it in one point. Uh, for Ortega it's the lowest point of popularity and legitimacy after 12 years being in the and two years after the April civic uprising, we are facing a three triple crisis, a human rights crisis, a politi- political crisis, and an economic crisis that has imposed three years of consecutive economic recession. Now we are facing the health crisis that is going to exacerbate economic economic disaster. Crisis. So my observation is that the political crisis of the dictatorship in the is inseparable the pandemic, and the solution must encompass encompass both problems. It cannot be separated one to the other. The protected government response to COVID-19 can be sorted into both health and negligence just because of the cost, It's not because they don't know what it's about. It's a very great strategy, almost 12. We, in Confidencial, revealed a, a content of an official document called the Protocol of Coronavirus Response by the Ministry of Health They described that the pandemic will infect 32,000 people and will cost 800. Hours. And many people consider these projections this were the, these are the official uh, projections. But the government decided no social distance measures. Okay. It never suspended classes. On the contrary, as everybody knows, it has promoted massive activities. <clears throat> I, I believe this is a political calculation and a political conspiracy because lives are at risk. Uh, we have we've, we've heard about last in Salvador and in Nicaragua would say zero transparency, no information. Or they have an absence of the basis. 35 days, and another long absence of fifteen days, and today has been thirty absence of responsibility. There is no publicity about the test. Even reports of the of health were literally, uh, you know, uh, impossible to understand. Confused, short. They were suspended for what We have total silence for what and they were misled yesterday. So there have been attitude by the government to keep the population completely blind. And at the moment, we are facing a half level of contagious communitarian contagious hospital and patients, medical doctors being contagious, there is more ideas to go on For uh, summarizes his attitude in one of his two public appearances from National television when launched a front attack against the civic the, the civil society a campaign stay, telling people to stay at home. He made he made fun of that of that campaign, and he said, "How how are we going to protect ourselves? Why have government taken this direction? Well, there are many interpretations because there is no official explanation. Some people believe this to mental health. you well they might be right because this is not anything powerful by all into a three case involved uh political and state crimes. Uh it this should be an uh, context of the leadership which we have international ideas. These people are it uh Power with absolutely no humanitarian consideration. At all. I believe at least two uh, nations of their behavior. One of these, one of these is the economic imperative. Even though Nicaragua has, been for three years, and economic recession, there is uh, there was some hope in the former side that will have normality it's there. <laughs> uh, the, the the nine to one percent, that was the normality that they were calculating, and they are completely focused on tax collection transaction, over um, the payroll of the police, of the repression, and the government. So, everything uh, in each economic activity will go against that key element. Of power and the second is i believe or so this <coughs> friends that the nation to service the peace between doing something against the pandemic and uh, suspending international sanctions so when uh, the central american
5: administration
0: school uh, called for some kind of a private Alliance to face the health crisis never answer was clear he sent to the capital in Nicaragua okay to report asking for suspension international sanctions and then talk so his objective was trying to provoke some kind of division. His previous alliance was left after the uh, 2018 killings. Uh, and since that was not possible because uh, the private sector was not alive for all the initiatives coming from the church, civil society, the opposition, and the private sector. So in Nicaragua, there is no single economic or social mitigation. Sure, and there's no not even one alert telling people uh stay home. Where are we at this moment? I believe Doctor they will go in more detail, but I will just summarize in two three data. If you have information that we have 25, 25 positive coronavirus cases in Nicaragua. Uh, more thousand hundred are uh, suspicious cases by confirmed uh, when tests have not been uh almost two hundred death all of them or most of those eight considered officially by the state are considered that they died because of pneumonia. Because of the are getting packed patients, doctors are being uh in laboratory of the of the Ministry of Health I have uh, confirmed information that some of the technicians, some of the doctors at work the they are positive. So the work has not been uh epidemiologists in Caracas. said next week will be the week of growth of uh how are we going to get out of this, I don't know, uh, could happen a major human crisis, but it's prolonged longer than in countries like in or Costa Rica. And this may have a regional impact and pressure when trying to leave the country because of the health crisis and because of the economy crisis so, so trying to leave Costa Rica for the uh, the economic crisis will aggravate because of the pandemic uh, um, Manuel Orozco calculates also 300 billion dollar in family remittances that that, that protect almost uh, half a million uh, families in Nicaragua so any any, any thinking about how to get out of this, what I can say is that the kind of entire approach, economic approach, in the work to the political solution, any help to economic recovery these levels, because political reforms, the suspension of the state police, the liberation of political prisoners. And there is a question mark in this crisis, which is something new, and that is the impact that uh, the COVID-19 crisis will have on Tegas political base, which represents almost percent of the electricity. What would be the impact on those static techniques impact on civil servants, that have been exposed to this? being discussed in the country. And I, I I don't I don't have I don't have a but I believe this is something completely new that will happen in terms of the political crisis. So far more national pressure, more national political pressure will be inseparable in this crisis about seeing the 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 big in in order to to look for a solution that will face both ISIS, the dictatorship ISIS, human rights crisis, and
6: pandemic. Thank you very much, uh, Carlos Fernando. Uh, Dr. Huete, would you uh, uh, please go ahead?
5: medical doctor, but I am a science doctor. Uh, and my research is focused on molecular biology of infectious diseases. Um, Although all Central American countries are reporting increasing numbers of positive COVID, it's becoming clear that Nicaragua may become the new epicenter of the pandemic in the region. Unofficial reports reveal that infections and deaths are beginning to escalate. Over the past few days, hundreds of new infections and deaths have been revealed by medical professionals and family members of the sick and also, as Carlos Fernando was saying, by the Independent National Observatory. The government is always reluctant to publish real data on sensitive issues. It's consistently underreporting the contagion level and the number of deaths. The government has adopted virtually no health measures to address the pandemic. They have ignored WHO recommendations for massive testing, quarantine, and social distancing. When the pandemic reached the region in March, all the Central American countries quickly agreed to introduce a number of measures. Nicaragua was the only country not implementing them, but it ended up with closed borders only because neighboring countries closed theirs and because all airlines canceled flights to Nicaragua. The only action that Nicaragua claimed to be implementing was in epidemiological control and surveillance of the borders, a very relaxed vigilance which relied mostly on travelers declaring any symptoms. The government began to adopt some measures only after the true scale of the epidemic, which uh, within Nicaragua could no longer be hidden from the public. Schools and universities never closed, except some in the private sector. All Central American countries received coronavirus test kits donated from South Korea, but the Nicaraguan government has yet to reveal where and how they have been used. The government did not do enough to prepare for an outbreak. That's it. We lost four precious months. In justifying their approach, the government fluctuates between neglect. We have other problems and bravado, we are the best. The Ministry of Health sent hundreds of health professionals to carry out thousands of door-to-door home visits to talk about virus without masks. Wearing masks was not part of the presentation, nor was self-quarantine. Those home visits presented possible sources of infection, and many people feared that the visits were meant to spy on the opposition or to spread the virus. The government defends its actions by relying on the absurd argument that Nicaragua has an excellent healthcare system, calling it the best health system in the Americas. They claim the superiority of the Nicaraguan community family health model as opposed to models in Europe. Were public health measures to fight coronavirus adequate? In the absence of effective containment actions, a significant proportion of the population will get infected. As this is now occurring quickly, it's overwhelming the precarious health system. Another problem is that because the government has repeatedly downplayed the seriousness of the virus threats, many doctors and nurses are getting sick as they were not provided the appropriate safety equipment. This, in turn, is contributing to weakening the health response. By letting the virus enter freely into the country and by promoting contagion through all the touristic and political activities, the government has done the contrary of what a system focused primarily on prevention and community health would recommend. Quarantine and social distancing will be essential in any preventive health uh, medical system. Carlos Fernando already talked about uh, the social political crisis, and we are left after the past two years in the middle of a horrific human rights crisis, police repression, paramilitary gangs. What is the nature of that wonderful community family health model? Well, according to MINSA, the Ministry of Health, Nicaragua has just 0.9 doctors per 1,000 people, 12 hospital beds for 10,000 people, and less than 8,000 beds in total for a population of 6.4 million people. However, the government admits that only 15% of critically ill patients would survive covid Although the government has admitted to having some 160 mechanical ventilators shared by seven, uh, 37 hospitals, independent medical associations estimate only half of those. Nicaragua allocates only 3.4 percent of its GDP to healthcare, compared to Panama at 5.9, or Costa Rica at 6.8. Let's also keep in mind that there's no universal healthcare in Nicaragua. Nicaraguans may be able to see a provider for free, but they have substantial out-of-pocket costs for medicines. Clearly, Nicaragua does not have the best health system in the Americas. Many Nicaraguans, about half a million people in 2019, suffered from chronic diseases, which places them at greater risks for more serious illness, should they become infected by coronavirus. What to do? The worst thing to do is what the government did, to stand easily by in the face of the pandemic. In terms of a system that cares for citizens' lives, doing nothing is always worse than overreacting. At this point, it's no longer possible to contain the virus spread through Nicaragua, now the focus must be on slowing down the virus spread, which would help flatten the curve and save lives. The most effective way to do, to do so is through social distancing, which includes canceling large-scale events. As Nicaraguans struggled to contain the virus, it's more important than ever to turn to expert advice and call for international aid, including requesting the assistance of human rights organizations. In conclusion, I'm not very optimistic that we still have time to avoid falling off the cliff. It would seem that uh, this government's strategy has been to to do nothing or as little as possible if not actively seeking the rapid infection of the entire population. The best strategy for a poor country is to suppress the infection from the beginning blocking the entry of the virus at all costs. There was no suppression strategy in Nicaragua. They were not consistent with their own model that should provide privilege, not the clinical care, but the preventive medicine. Nicaraguans were left praying to God that the pandemic would not hit Nicaragua and that miraculously only a few would die. Carlos was asking about the impact on the political class or specifically on Ortega. Well, I'm certain that one day we may have the molecular tools to learn how many people were affected and how many died from COVID in Nicaragua. Eventually, when there's a chance to evaluate what was done in Nicaragua, analysts will not focus only on the number of deaths. Hopefully, analysts will look at whether Nicaragua did everything in their means to use the science, the information, and the medicine available at the time. Thank you.
6: Thank you very much for all of that. Uh, a quick reminder to those of you who would like to ask a question of the speakers, please press star 1 uh, and uh, to enter the queue. So uh, we'll take a, a couple of quick questions. But uh, before that, I'd, first of all, I wanted to commend Carlos Fernando and Jose Luis for the excellent online coverage of the crisis in Confidencial and El Faro. And I can definitely recommend those sites to anyone on the call who's following the course of events in Central America. So uh, as I said, we're going to turn to uh, some questions. And to to, uh, kick it off, I'm going to uh, ask, uh, as we take the first question, whether uh, the speakers could keep in mind uh, one point that I think is important. which is, what could possibly change the course of each government's direction of the crisis? Uh, In the case of El Salvador, what could possibly change public perceptions and public opinion, uh, which obviously is very important to the President? And in the case of uh, Nicaragua, what could change the calculus within the government of President Ortega to change their approach? But uh, to kick this off, why don't we go um, to uh, Carlos Hasbun and his question.
4: Very great presentation. Thank you very much. Um, My name is Carlos Hasman from uh, USAID, the LAC Bureau. I wanted to ask our uh, Salvadoran colleagues, what would be um, your suggestions to the the international cooperation
7: agencies to focus their support to the country in view of this uh, crisis and in view of the
4: uh, significant amount of money that uh, the government currently has. Thank you.
6: What, Jose Luis, why don't we uh, go with you and then uh, Carmen Aida, please go ahead.
0: Um,
6: well, it's
4: um, well, not something I am. I, um, i i don't know if i i want to say that but but uh, I, I think first of all uh, uh, reinforcing uh, civil society i think i think is vital in in this moment um, in terms of democracy and in terms of, of, uh, of
0: um,
4: uh, society in uh, the public debate but uh, in terms of the crisis the thing is we can assume that, that the, 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 the response has a lot of needs, but we don't even know in which areas. So, the uh, conditions—I mean—I mean—link um, this, this, uh, any kind of help to transparency um, and to, to a, a proper plan. I, I think is, is key in, in this situation. I mean, if, if international. Uh, organizations or other countries are not able to force the, the government to, to be more transparent and, and more uh, more explicit about their supposed uh, plans. Um, right now, I, I think any help uh, or, or money will go to, to somewhere we don't know where or for what, because we don't have a clear...
6: Uh, roadmap, I Great. Car- Carmen?
1: Yes. Well, thank you for the question, Carlos. And I think it's much what USAID and international agencies can do. Uh, above everything, I think we have to do anything to avoid the erosion of democratic institutions and the role of USAID and other agencies is key for that purpose. And also, as Jose Luis said, I think uh, projects that are uh, directed to strengthen the uh, transparency and the stakeholders, I think, is very important right now. I think is the most. I think, for me, the most important. <clears throat> is avoid losing what we have gained after the civil war in terms of democratic institutions. Uh, this is the base of everything. And maybe also another another thing that is important, just to say, is uh, we have to keep a multi-disciplinary approach in terms of uh, fighting of by. Of, of violence and crime. Right now, we have a government that is using what we call mano dura. I don't know what would be the translation, but like a, an approach that is uh, uh, completely, uh, uh, that doesn't have an emphasis, for example, in prevention, right? So I think that USAID has provided so much support to El Salvador in order to have a comprehensive approach on, on, on fighting violence and crime, and, and we need to, to recover that. Uh, so I, I would urge the international community, the international organizations, not to underestimate the impact that you can have on El Salvador. It, it, it's key at this moment. It's important humanitarian aid, of course, but it, I think it's more important right now to, to defend uh, the democratic institutions that have caused so much to El Salvador.
6: Carmen, thank you so much. Uh, we're going to go now to uh, Kate Linthicum.
1: Hi, I'm a reporter from the Los Angeles Times. Thank you so much for all this really important information. Um, It's good to have a perspective from inside the country. I was wondering um, in Nicaragua whether you're seeing um, activists, anti-government or pro-democracy activists playing any role in trying to combat the pandemic. are there, are people, what are people doing on their own um, to try to protect themselves and protect their communities? Um, are there any interesting uh, sort of things that are happening at more of the ground level? Thank you.
6: So who would like to pick that one up?
0: Well, i a few words about that, I guess Jorge can tell us more. <coughs> well, Everything that is being done in Carabobo to preserve life is being done by citizens, by civil society organizations, by activists, by doctors. Uh, There there is a pronouncement by more than 500, uh, 500 uh, specialist doctors changing the government about their negligence. political acts are on. Sharing information, uh, transferring people that need it, and go out to the streets. And that's why the government is backing so brutally the campaign about stay home. But remember, Nicaragua is mostly an informal economy, 70% of the population the formal sector. So even if they want to stay home, it's very difficult for people to go out to make make their lives. But but yes, I think I would say that the the doctors community and the scientists community is a leading voice in Nicaragua, and political actors are depending on them to promote this crusade to preserve lives and telling people to stay
6: home. Thank you. Would anyone else like to uh, jump in? I have an observation on that.
5: Um, can I say something? Please. Uh, yeah, I'll just add to what Carlos was saying, that, uh, you know, the, the population in general uh, has been adopting their own methods of prevention. And, and there have been quite a few uh, independent organizations, both uh, medical and scientific associations, including the Academy of Sciences. There's a multidisciplinary scientific committee also uh, providing information and guidance to the public. And uh, this has been really important to the population, you know, and these committees, these uh, organizations have been calling uh, to follow the advice of WHO. However, I have to say, you know, that um, by ignoring uh, the advice of these scientists and experts, the government has also undermined the role of science in Nicaragua. And it's really a pity that um, especially because at uh, the arrival of the epidemic, Nicaragua had dozens of experts, you know, in different areas of sciences and medicine who could have supported them in making strategic decisions. But they did not uh, need, you know, to resort to Cuban doctors to appropriately attend the problem of Nicaragua because Nicaraguan specialists have a much, uh, much or better experience than those Cubans. You know, for decades, epidemiologists, virologists, molecular biologists have formed and have valuable work class experience in Nicaragua. So it's a shame that they have not been considered by the government. And the government would rather trust their political allies rather than the Nicaraguan doctors. And I think it's about time that they start calling universities to take play a serious role in helping uh, handle properly this disease. Uh, you know, and there's so much that we have lost, you know, there's so much research that Nicaragua could have been doing, you know, describing the clinical cases, uh, describing the clinical approach that should be used, you know, describing what the real epidemiological data are, which we don't know so far, and also determine, you know, the biological strains of viruses that are circulating in Nicaragua. All of this has been done. You know, by scientists in Costa Rica and Nicaragua has as much experience as they have. So we could have done a lot and it's really a shame. And we don't really know who is advising the government if there's any uh, scientists, you know, advising them. We do see on TV, you know, some of those uh, physicians that are really administrators, you know, of hospitals. And they're really, uh, we, we can see their political credentials, but we don't know what medical or scientific credentials they have. And they should take responsibility for all those wrong decisions that they have taken.
6: Many thanks. Uh, so we have, colleagues, we have a, a 10 minute extension on this uh, event, uh, given the number of people we still have in the queue and the uh, quality of the discussion. So we're going to continue on. Uh, next time we're gonna call on Alex from uh, Insight.
8: Uh, good morning, everybody. Uh, as a deeply concerned Salvadoran, I want to thank Cindy for holding this very important briefing and, and also want to add my voice to Jane Harman's highlighting your exceptional leadership. Uh, now, picking up on, on Ricardo's call to focus on what might change the, call, the, the course in El Salvador, I have two questions. First, The Legislative Decree 608, which authorized the government to seek up to $2 billion in outside financing, including issuance of bonds and loans uh, from IFIs, included a supervision committee that was referred to in the remarks. Now that the civil society members have resigned just two days ago, one can argue that this committee is no longer operative. So since the committee was a requirement in the law, will IFIs or potential bond buyers still consider that the government retains the legal authority to issue bonds or conclude loan agreements? And the second question is, there are important international voices that are absent, especially in the US. Ambassador Kozak uh, called the constitutional crisis in El Salvador a difference of opinion, quote. And the OAS has been silent regarding human rights violations. PAHO, through its representative in El Salvador, is lending legitimacy to the government's internment strategy. There have been no calls in the U.S. to review military and security assistance to El Salvador, given the armies and police disrespect for legal norms. So the question is, how can the U.S. administration and Congress, in particular those two, be moved to change U.S. policy towards El Salvador?
6: Carmen, why don't we start with you on the first question, and then uh, uh, both of you can can respond to the second. Uh,
1: sorry, with me. Uh,
6: uh, term- yes, yeah, Carmen. Yeah, I the power.
1: Yes. Yes. Sorry. So, with the first question, so as as you say, the five representatives from the private sector left the committee two days ago. So, what, I, what is going to happen is that the committee will be composed only by the, by the government members. So this committee was compounded by 11 people. The government ministries, uh, they have the majority. Uh, Anyway, so uh, probably the Congress will accept the resignation of the private sector, and the government will retain uh, the capacity to decide over the use of of the funds, which already was was happening, because the reason why uh, think tanks and, and universities resigned was because the decisions were not taken, were taken outside of the committee. So I think this is a bad sign, as you say, to the, uh, uh, maybe to the bondholders, to the private community, because it, what it shows, the way it's interpreted is lack of transparency. But uh, in my expectation, what I have heard is that the government uh, is looking for cheap, uh funds in multilater- multilateral agencies with the BCE, I don't know what what would be the the translation, but the Central Central American Bank, the IDB, the Bank, at the IMF. Uh, Remember that El Salvador has uh, obtained almost $400 million from IMF over the last month, which was also like a a good sign, uh, at least for the outside community. So uh, I think maybe the government will have the capacity at least to raise the $2,000 billion without the participation of the private sector. And, and the second question was regarding what is the position of the, of the U.S. foreign policy on El Salvador. And, yes, I agree that uh, in, in a country like El Salvador, when we say we have La Embajada, we have one embassy, the U.S. embassy, the silence in terms of uh, not saying anything regarding these uh, uh uh, it's problem that we're seeing in terms of a uh, constitutional uh, uh, the, the defiance of the president. I, I think the, the silence is definitely is not good. And we're expecting, I think, I'm talking as a Salvadorian, we're expecting a change in the position of the embassy.
6: Uh, Jose
4: Luis, do you have anything you'd like to add to that? Yeah. That's in, in terms of the legal authority of, of, the, press, of the president um, to to continue with that, um, I guess, uh, without the society participation. I think it's still to be seen that the political reaction in the Congress, I mean, the opposition parties' reaction, uh, if they, in, in some way, decide to take this uh, as, a, um, as, a, as, a, as some kind of, some kind of of, of uh, reason to confront the the, the government and, and to try to redefine the the, the decree or, or the terms of the decree or force um, the um, the government to to react in some concrete way. Uh, probably we will see a a, a, a a political conflict, and then we will we will. Go to the Supreme Court to, to see uh, their position in, in terms of um, validating or not the uh, 608 decree. Uh, again, I, I think that this um, falls in, in this falls in, in, in the table of discussion of of the the political plural discussion and uh, in the legal discussions, we are uh, improving because uh, right now, as I said, my my biggest fear is to continue with this unilateral management of the crisis of, of any decision. Um, I, I don't have too much to say about the United States administration um, position uh, and how they, how they could react. I, I don't have uh, any hopes in, in this area.
6: Great. Thank you very much. Uh, so uh, we have time for a couple of more quick questions. And uh, just so all the listeners know, we're also going to have the audio of this call on the website for uh, the Wilson Center's Latin America program. Uh, by later today. So, uh, next we're going to go to Mac Mongolese of uh, Bloomberg Opinion.
7: Uh, hi. Um, thank you very much for having this. This is a, this is a fascinating session. Um, and I wanted to ask a question specifically to um, uh, Professora Carmen. Um, about uh, the emergency aid. One of the problems um, in many Latin American countries now uh, has been to uh, identify and find people to distribute this emergency aid. many countries, uh, I believe El Salvador included, have uh, traditional cash transfer programs. But the problem of the informal sector uh, the many people in the informal sector affected means that uh, many people have fallen through the cracks and they're sort of invisible because they're not on the traditional social register. I wonder if you might uh, give me an idea of um, how many people are in this situation in El Salvador. In other words, how many people are um, not registered and, and therefore difficult to find and, and how does the government do that and distribute aid to them?
1: Thank you for the question. Uh, so far the government has not released information on what was the criteria used for uh, giving the $300 transfer to the families. They said that this was going to be given to families based on the consumption of, of energy, uh, of electricity at the household. Uh, but there are so many problems of people that, for example, the bill is not under their name, but is under the name of somebody else, so they didn't receive that. Or, for example, people that doesn't have energy at their homes or that they connect through the neighbors. So we don't still have, a, a like, an estimation of how many people that deserve it to have uh, this transfer didn't receive this because the problem is that El Salvador doesn't have a social Protection system with uh, people registered to receive uh, subsidies under the system. This is this is something that I, we have to admit. The government wanted to do something, do something very fast, tried to do that way, uh, and now the, soci- uh, the civil society we are saying, okay, please uh, tell us how, how did you do it? What were the criteria? How many people uh, were left behind, as you say? Uh, we still don't know, so I cannot like provide. An accurate estimation of that. Uh, we have heard from many stories uh, that people that call me, for example, saying, "Can you check on my uh, on my identity number if, to to see if I receive the you know the subsidy?" And so, and they and, and they haven't. And the government is not giving the three hundred dollars anymore because it costs El Salvador like $400 million, and we don't have the fiscal space to do that in another another month. Mm. So now they are giving away these food baskets. And also we're, we're, we're asking, okay, what is the criteria? How are you going to, to focus these days? Uh, I don't think this, this can last more than two months, uh, given the, the fact that the, the, the fiscal uh, revenues are falling uh, dramatically. So this is the situation right now.
6: Excellent. Thank you very much. So we are going to have time for one last call. From uh, we have uh, Emily Rugama from American Jewish World Service uh, on the line. This will be the last uh, question.
1: Great, thank you so much. Thank you to the panelists. Uh, Your on-the-ground perspective is so important. Um, my question is for the folks from Nicaragua. Um, do you think that the the strategy to promote mass Uh, contagion is also sort of a political calculation by Ortega to have a more quote-unquote legitimate excuse for postponing the November uh, 2021
0: election? Uh, I I think we cannot exclude that possibility for for many others. I I believe Ortega has always a menu of different options about how to hold power, how to extend uh, his control of power. He's not he's not thinking of that reforms will facilitate governability in the country, but how to prolong his staying in power. Actually one of one of the main government uh propagandists, William Grisby, said the other day, Well, what about elections? Well phone Thinking aloud what many people are asking about, elections are scheduled for late uh, next year. I, I, I believe the crisis could exercise uh, in, uh, a pressure on, a, on the same direction and uh, it all depends on, on whether Nicaraguan Nicaragua society can maintain uh, national unity uh, with the pressure of citizens, activists uh with the impact of the economic and social crisis, but we also need a much more let's say proactive decisive action of big business i mean they really have to to make a stand about whether they are or not for political change they're going to wait for Ortega to destroy completely the country. We need more national pressure and more international pressure <clears throat> in order to the The conditions for those political and to go to elections you order to decide well he will he will you whatever great uh,
5: dr uh
6: uh wete would you have anything you'd like to add to that?
5: no, I think uh Carlos uh, put it really well. Um, You know, I would just say, you know, for people abroad, uh, people in the U.S. or Europe or elsewhere, you know, let's bear in mind that uh, we in Nicaragua we don't really have democracy anymore. Formally, we do, but in reality, there's no democracy in Nicaragua. There's no rule of law. There's no way that a political party can come to power, you know, through elections. So this really needs to change a lot. You know, we don't even have a president because, you know, Ortega is absent. Uh, You know, the the real president is his wife, who was never elected to that position. Uh, And what we have is a family dynasty imposed upon Nicaraguans.
6: Thank you very much. And with this, I'd like to, we're going to bring this to a close, and I'd like to really thank our panelists for bringing uh, so much important information to the people on this call and to the world about uh, what is going on. It's a very alarming situation, obviously, in both countries. uh, Distinct, as we said at the top of the call, but with characteristics that have serious implications for societies and institutions in in both places. Uh, We appreciate very much the participation of everyone who, who phoned in. Uh, Cindy, thank you very much and, uh, and Jane Harman uh, for kicking off the call as well. Uh, we hope to have all of you back again on a, on a future uh, event and we will have plenty to talk about over the coming months and I think that the four panelists gave us quite a bit more to talk about here and in other settings. So thank you again uh, to everyone who participated.
1: Thank you very much Ricardo and Cindy and everyone.
6: Thank you for being thank the you. Goodbye.
1: Thank you for your participation in today's conference. All parties may disconnect at this time.